You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast, where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors. Let's get into it. No, I prefer it's go time. Alright, so we've got a, uh, a different episode tonight, but we feel it's really important to get this out and about because it's, I guess, flown under the radar as far as I'm concerned. I haven't really seen any parties or anything pushing this and quite surprises me a little bit because there are some sections of what we're going to talk about tonight that quite closely link with some legislation that's gone through the parliament as of late that we've talked about. So tonight, Dodge and I are going to be unpacking the National Feral Deer Action Plan from 2022 to 2027. It is a draft for consultation at the moment, and there's some important dates that we'll tell you about at the end, and also an email that you can contact to give your feedback. And further to that, we've also got a bit of an email template. So if there's anyone out there that wants to use our template and just add to it and change it as they see fit, please send us an email at the endless pursuit podcast at gmail.com. Dodge, how are you? Good, mate. Good. How are you? How's your day been? Yeah, not too bad. I've been looking at this for a couple of days now and um, there are some areas that have some really good positives and there are some areas that I'm really concerned about. Have you got any background on the plan as far as do we have a current plan? I'm not 100% sure. I don't believe there is one. And well, this is coming from a couple of governing bodies I've never heard of before. So again, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, there's a lot of acronyms in there being a government. And it is interesting. It is one that it's, as I said, it's really snuck under the radar as far as I'm concerned, because I haven't really seen much about this at all. So I felt it was, I guess, our job to unpack it and I've spent a fair bit of time going over it and uh, there will be a video that sort of accompanies this podcast as well on our YouTube, um, really just to for people to not have to sit there and read the whole document because it is a lengthy document. It's lengthy and I will admit yeah. I have not read it all. Matt has and I will be playing devil's advocate and asking him all the questions this evening. So hey, I look good. forward to it. It's- change it up so look let's get into it because it is quite lengthy and i've tried to i guess unpack it especially does it come in an audio book well no it doesn't so i've tried to unpack it and condense it as much as possible especially being in a podcast format so yeah look it's the dates are pretty soon that's that's my big concern is we're talking about there's a online meeting so just for some general information at the end of this month and that's january i think it's about the 23rd the dates i'll tell you later but the submissions for consultation draft feedback from everybody has to be in by may that's not that long and especially don't leave it to the last minute because they've got to read all of those as well so what have we got this whole plan is aimed at i guess it starts off by saying that deer are a growing problem and and look we know that it's something that is constantly in the news, it's constantly being put out there, that deer are continuing to grow in numbers and their estimation has sort of come in and said that in 1980 there was about 50,000 feral deer here in Australia and now they're, they're guessing the population's reached between 1 to 2 million. Now that's a significant increase. Sure is. And on top of that, that's taking into account that there was a heap wiped out by the large bushfires that occurred. And look, 
that burnt a lot of our country and a lot of prime deer habitat. So when they're saying that the population's up to one to two million, that's a very big bounce back after those fires where we know that the populations were decimated. Now, when they're saying it's a growing problem, they are looking at various different elements such as for farmers, national parks, such as sacred sites, encroachment on suburban areas. So they're attacking it from a multifaceted point of view. And look, I don't think we can argue the point that there is a large increase in deer numbers and we know that they're in the suburbs, we know that they're doing damage. Uh, That's something that we, I, I think, have to be open and honest about and say, yes, that is occurring. But let's really unpack this and talk about what are we going to do to to sort of limit it now one of the things the key things you'll see in this i think this is the second page the very first thing talking about a growing problem is current populations are too high to be controlled by recreational hunting or recent control efforts and they've cited tasmania as the example what are your thoughts about that dodge that recreational hunters really this is saying that they're, they're not good enough and that's how I'm interpreting this. Well, not good enough at what though? Like what's the what's the control on that conversation? Because we're not allowed international parks. Like how many deer are we pulling out of state forest a year? And, you know, if we were allowed into some of these areas we're not allowed into, would we do just as well in there? I mean, I don't know. I'd, yeah, it's tricky. I also know that a lot of guys go hunting and then don't shoot all the deer they see. So is that being non-effective? I, I'm guilty of that if that's the case because I don't shoot all the deer I see on purpose because I'm trying to keep myself a resource, not get rid of it. But uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see as we go into this further if there's any mention of national park access. The information I just gave you there saying highlighting recreational hunting, that was taken from as an example from Tasmania where they said that farmer control and rec hunting has slowed population growth but it was still around 11% per year. And what they're saying there is, you know, every seven to 12 years that the population will double. Now, I have concerns with how that's coming about. Now, that's just using some data and some mathematics to get that number. But if we go into drought, there's less food, there's, you know, more fawns that don't make it. You know, there's so many other elements that I don't think are being taken into consideration when they're thinking about this and they're just looking at the raw data. Yeah. We don't know if those numbers are conservative or generous either. Like there's no scale. That's that's correct. No. And there's not really a great deal of information to back that up. They've really just said, oh, we've cited this part, but there's no links to that. So I haven't had the chance to, to jump into that document and read that as well. Which for anyone listening is the Department of Primary Industries, Parks, Water and Environment, Cunningham et al. 2021 document. Do you know what et al means? And others. Is that what it means? Very good. Look yeah. at you. Anything to find a shortcut in life, mate. <laughs> Especially with reading. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about the impacts of feral deer here. And they've broken this into three sections. Now they're talking firstly about the economic impacts. And for that, they're, they're looking at agriculture and primary producers essentially. And they're saying that they compete with livestock eating pasture, crops and forestry saplings, damage fences and, you know, impact infrastructure. So, so just negative impacts? Yeah, 100%. And I, I, look, I don't think we can argue with those things. They're the reality of, no, they're all facts. of an animal, like whether it be pigs, whether it be, 
you know, kangaroos also impact the feed in pastures. So they're targeting them from that sort of angle. They also talk about them carrying diseases and parasites that can be transmitted to livestock. Again, we can say our native animals do that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe our native animals do pass things on as well. And then they're also saying that they can hinder programs that are responding to disease outbreaks in exotic livestock. Now, I'm not sure what they mean by exotic livestock. Have you got any idea there? Are they talking about other deer farms maybe? I don't know why they're arguing about exotic animals hindering programs responding to the disease outbreaks in other exotic animals. No, I don't don't have an answer for that one. Yeah, no, that's confusing. And there wasn't really much there that I could see that that related to that. So that's the unpacking of the economic side. The next side is talking about social and cultural impacts. So they're talking about how they're spreading into, well, I guess, what they call peri-urban. Urban fringe. Between rural and urban landscapes. And we've seen that. I mean, Wollongong's the perfect example. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> you drive up and down Mount Oosley, there's heaps of rooster. Deer are eating my gardens. Yeah. there's And, you know, you see the videos on Facebook all the time of, you know, a nice big stag just running across all these well-maintained lawns in a uh, in one of those coastal sort of suburbs and yeah it's it's out there and we can't deny that but where they're coming from here is they're talking about people's property and safety issues such as vehicle collisions damaging parks and gardens impacting revegetation sites and during mating season <laughs> or the rut that they're aggressive towards people and domestic animals so far everything you've said there can be related to kangaroos. Well, I, yeah, this this is it's interesting, isn't it? They also put in here that they're the potential reservoir for human disease such as COVID nineteen. Now, it is clear that de- deer can catch COVID nineteen, but I guess we all say from the vaccination anyway, aren't we? That was what we were told. So, I don't know why this one's such a big deal, but apparently, humans spreading it. We don't need to worry about, but the feral deer we do. Cull them all. Yeah. It's also saying here, feral deer on private property may attract illegal poaching, resulting in trespassing, illegal use of firearms, and damage to properties. And that's directly off this document. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's, again, Wollongong, prime example. I know of a handful of guys down there that shoot rooster on private land that they don't have access to. Yeah, and this is something that I don't, Again, are we we making a rule, like are we looking here at the minority and that's what we're going to base everything on because that gets really dangerous if we're looking at the minority of everything and that's the the benchmark. We're setting it at that that floor rather than that ceiling. Then they also talk about feral deer damaging cultural sites of traditional owners and that has a major impact. Uh, They say in here about scarring and like significant trees and that's in national parks. Yeah, so scar trees and signal trees, basically before street signs, the traditional owners. Was a way to. Yeah, they'd mark the tree saying, turn left here to head down to Wombian Caves. Or There's actually a fair few of them along the ridgeline heading down to Wombian Caves. Yeah, so they didn't get lost. Yeah, but what's a de- Like, we know deer will rub on a tree, but then they're only rubbing on saplings. They're not rubbing on, these things are on like 1,000-year-old trees or 300-year-old trees. We're not talking small trees here, so I don't see that being a negative, like an actual valid point. I'm not really sure 
how much of an impact that is. I'm not going to say that they don't damage cultural areas. And they're saying there that uh, culturally important trees are being lost, such as the Karajong. Now, I know that the Karajong is a consumable plant. If it's drought season, you can actually cut limbs off that and feed it to your cattle. Uh, I don't know if sheep or horses will eat it, but I know that cattle will. So I would assume that deer would eat it, but they only eat up to the browse line. They're not uh, not wiping out the whole They're tree. Not giraffes. That's right. Yeah, the browse line's not the top of the tree. And then, look, the third one is environmental impacts. And this is, again, talking about that they're trampling native plants, that they're creating wallows, that they're eating. Now, not all deer species wallow, so they're not being really super specific here. Or am I wrong there? You might did, – I didn't think fallow wallowed? Um, no, they don't wallow. They will play in mud occasionally, but no, definitely not to the level yeah. of samba and red deer. Correct. So, they're again, they're not breaking this down specifically – in this document, they're just making blanket sort of broad sweeping sort of comments, which is concerning because this is supposed to be scientific evidence here. Look, it can, it goes through a heap of different things saying that they're impacting and competing for food with kangaroos and wallabies. And this is where I, I have sort of, you know, my, my ears prick up when I hear that too, because I don't think we do a good enough job of culling kangaroos and wallabies because they're protected. So you can't let that population get out of control and then say, oh, well, the deer are, are causing them issues because we know that kangaroos have issues with wiping out food and starving when it's just kangaroos there. So they're not really going into any of these details as well. They talk about spreading diseases and parasites, eroding sort of waterways and, and damage because of their, their hooves. But again, we could throw back to the Brumbies in Kosciuszko National Park that the deer are the bad guys with their hooves, but the Brumbies get a bit of a free pass because they're horses. I, I didn't think that was a huge issue until two things. I visited, I went down to the Snowies on a horse ride and I went up to Darwin on the buffalo hunts. Now, you don't realise what European animals with cloven hooves or you know, horse buffalo style feet can do to a wetland area. And I, I didn't think it was a huge issue, but when you see it up there, what it is, we're talking massive wetlands, flat country where the water just puddles on essentially. But then you get these buffalo that walk across it. They don't walk. If you see native animals other than kangaroos crossing fence lines, they generally run in groups. They don't run in single file, whereas horses, buffalo, things like that tend to run single file. I don't think deer run single file, but then... When you see their tracks through the forest, they're usually on one particular trail, game trails as we call them. Anyway, so these buffalo are walking the same track and what they're doing is creating channels and then as the water moves through the channel, it cuts its own little channel and cuts deeper and then it actually creates its own little creek eventually, which wasn't there originally and then that diverts the water out of the wetland and then it can change the whole ecosystem. So from a practical point of view, I've seen that happen. I uh, I understand that one and I can... I don't know that deer cause, well, they don't. Their feet are smaller, right? But they're definitely not as uh, not as rough on the land as the brumbies and the buffalo and things. But let's not talk about brumbies. That's a touchy subject, Matt. Yeah, I know. But look, that we, we I don't think anyone's out there, any hunters out there saying that deer do no damage. But the reality is they're here. And on our last podcast, we spoke about 
trout being an introduced game species and, and that being caused bred a bit of a by stir. the government and released. Yeah, and deer are not seen as the same resource. And even in this part here where it's the economic impacts, where are the economic positives? What about the money that deer hunting brings in? That's a big industry. Do you think there's any social and cultural positives? Well, look, oh, I think so. If we're talking from a social aspect, hunting community, going out with mates, being out in the bush, COVID was a perfect example of people going stir crazy in houses. And we know how good it is for your mental well-being to both exercise and be out in nature. So from a social perspective, that most definitely is. From a cultural one, traditional owners, Aboriginal people have been hunting for since they've been here. Like, So we're not, you know, yeah. from a cultural perspective, yes, they haven't been hunting deer. I'm sure they are now. They are 100%. Like it's, it's a good, you know, it's good meat. We should be embracing it as far as I'm concerned. What about positive environmental impacts? Okay, so this is where you'd be hard-pressed to argue there's positive environmental impacts. Agreed. I don't think there is anything there that we can say, hey, they're fantastic for the landscape. They're not. I don't think we can argue that point. They look pretty. They do. And I don't want to be here and say I'm going to try and find things because I really can't think of anything that, from an environmental side, deer are positive on the landscape other than us being able to hunt them and having a good source of venison. What about you? Do you see any, anything that I've missed in those three things? No, well covered. I'm, I'm reading this for the first time as well. Well, I had briefly read over it, but uh, reading it in depth as we go. No, it's interesting, like we mentioned right at the start there, these all seem to be negative impacts. And that's the point, right? They're trying to get us to adopt this plan by seeing how bad the deer are, not seeing any positives in it. Now, in fairness, there are some sections here that I do really agree with and I like, and we'll get into them as we right. we go along. All right, so let's just talk about the current control methods because I think it's important to understand what we're currently doing and where they want to go with this. So from a current control method, we are looking at they've already got policies in place and they're the regulations, they're our legislation and the like. So I'm not, we're not going to go through all of those because they're already in place. People should know them. All right, that's we can hunt in state forests, recreational hunters, landowners can um, in different – again, these vary from state to state. Up here in New South Wales, we can shoot them under spotlight. They removed the, um, the game designation and made them pests so they can be shot at night, spotlighting, etc. They have various control tools. Now, some of these include aerial culling, ground culling by both professional and recreational shooters, trapping, and also exclusion fences. Now, they're the current control methods. We know national parks. We know LLS. We know that they do some of these things. Uh, we generally always hear people getting upset, especially around the rut when they go in an aerial cull just before the rut because it seems like the time of year that they want to do it. Uh, we also know there's ground culling. I've been to national parks before where they've got the signs up that shooting's been undertaken, whether it be day or night, to be to be mindful in that area just so you don't panic or don't go into the area. Now, I haven't heard much about trapping. You might know a bit more about that than I do. No, no, never seen anything about live trapping. Other than New Zealand stuff. Yeah. Well, that's apparently a control method. So I was quite surprised when I saw that in there. 
And then exclusion fences, yeah, we, we know about high fences for deer and, and the like. So that generally makes sense. I've been a part of that side of things. I've done some fencing for LLS for exclusion fencing where they will put a post out there in the local paper or in their social media stuff where farmers can contact them and say, we have a creek and then the LLS will come in and do an assessment and say that you know it's obviously damaged by this, this, and this. We will provide the fencing free of charge to the owner as long as the owner excludes that zone for 10 years while the trees that the LLS are planting in there are allowed to grow to you know hold the bank back or, or what's ever required. So I've, uh, I've been on the other end of exclusion fences, actually ex- installing them. And there's a large one, we put a tender in for it, going in around, uh, is it Belanglo you went down to? It was bow hunting only and you couldn't get in because the gates were closed? Yeah. And I think I was up to 28 kilometers worth of fencing through there. And man, where they want to put it, it's just so dumb. It's the boundary, but like I needed a big drop dozer to go through there just to clear a line down a cliff face and then back up the other side. And that's where they wanted it. They wanted it on the boundary. So, I mean, the price is huge and we're paying for it. We're paying for that. I'll um, keep talking and I'll I'll find the price for you if you want on what 27 kilometers was for that quote. I've got some questions here though. When you say we're paying for it, I agree we are paying for it, but that's also contributing to the economy because the person such as yourself that wins that tender, they're employing people to do the work, they're paying taxes. So it's I don't see this necessarily as a complete negative when we're paying for Do you want to know how much that was though? Yeah, go for sh- two and a half million. Yeah. Two point four seven five million dollars. Well, was that quote? Keep that figure in mind because when we talk about some of the strategies that I'd like that I know I've emailed in and spoke about because I, I do see opportunities here to offset some of these costs. Sure. Noted. All right. So there's three goals to this document. Now, goal one is to stop the spread of large populations and reduce their impact. The positive of this document and this plan is that it's now not coming from we're going to wipe them out. It's going to be let's control the spread. Let's minimize the impact. Let's keep their numbers in check. I see that as a real positive because there's going to be deer there in the future and, and that's a win as far as I'm concerned. Now, this goal also talks basically in the document and in the video, you'll see this. It gives a map of Australia and it basically breaks it into three zones. They've got zone one, which is basically the eastern seaboard and a decent chunk in Queensland, which is the large population zone. This is where they want the main management approach. Is Sorry, the main management approach in this is just the protection of priority assets and localized containment where they can. Zone two is the national containment buffer zone. This is where they're going to look at cross-regional coordinated surveillance and response activity. Now, I'll talk about the different things when we get there, but just keep that in mind is that this corridor, essentially, it's inland from the main zone. And here, they want to try and... I guess they want to eradicate where feasible. That's the best way to put this. They they basically want this zone so that they don't spread. And this is going to be sort of, from my understanding, it looks like it's going to be attacked pretty hard. And then the third zone, which is sort of pockets throughout, I guess, the main zone, 
and that's called small isolated population zone. This is where there's either no feral deer or they're scattered in very small patches. They want to eradicate them there and basically stop any new incursions going on there. So the long-term goal there is to maintain that as a real low-density area for deer. You'll notice by this map it is mainly impacting Victoria, New South Wales, and I guess the lower part of southeast Queensland and there is a bit further up but they're the main parts and there's a little bit over in WA and obviously Tasmania's majority like is, is fairly I guess impacted as a as a little island it's a lot of land it is and just looking at that buffer zone geez it's a lot of a lot of land to keep as a buffer zone isn't that the state forest most of them all through there well it does look like it sort of from the mountain from the mountains over the top, anything beyond basically Blue Mountains? It does look like the Great Dividing Range line, doesn't it? It pretty much is. I'm going to say that's sort of where it crosses the Victorian border. So Yep. it's uh, So that's very interesting that that's there. Now, it makes sense that that would be their line. It does. I don't, it's, yeah, I don't know how that's going to be achieved, but I can do, I can, you know, have a pretty good guess at what they're pitching. So that's goal one. Now, I guess we all want to hear, most of us are recreational hunters, so they want to hear here what, what they're sort of proposing. So from a recreational hunter point of view, they're considering getting people to become a volunteer shooter for a local feral deer control program, often on private land, that seeks to strategically coordinate efforts to reduce a target number of feral deer in a time frame. Part of that could be accreditations, membership to incorporated organisations, equipment and work conditions may apply. And they're also wanting people to report and discourage illegal releases of deer and poaching to police. This I have some questions for. Who's running this? Because... Do you remember when they opened this up for the kangaroos? Uh, is that through... Like the farmer assist program type situation? Uh, yeah, through SSAA. Uh... No, I wasn't a member of that. Oh, yeah? No, this one was it's just recently, like let's say three years ago, pre-fires, and it was where a farmer could register his interest and say that he had kangaroos. It's when they dropped the tags on kangaroos and you could actually consume them and take them from the property. And basically farmers would go on there and list their property and then the DPI would contact them, assess their property without going there, give them 50 tags, put them on a system, and then the farmer would be able to go through the system and pick a shooter that was on there. So I'm on there. My wife was on there and the farmers could pick someone that was maybe local to them. Now, I got absolutely zero phone calls from that and I don't know anyone else who got phone calls from that. What happened though was, um, so one of the people my wife works with, he had a property. He wanted me to shoot some kangaroos and I said, look, I can't do it legally unless you go through this system because it puts me on his tag system and allows me to shoot them under his tags through that so he had to join up they gave him the 50 tags admittedly on 50 acres in the middle of Berrima so it's pretty close to town and yeah so he went on there and selected inverted commas my name and the wife's name and then we went out there and shot them all and it worked perfectly there was no policing there was no organization but it worked really well for us so if this happens like that I'm pretty keen so I signed up for the SSAA one and where you had to go out and you had to shoot a target, you had to get it signed off on, you had to do that every 12 months. And 
I got onto their, I can't remember what it was called, but their pests site, you would get very, there was very few jobs that came up and the ones that did had a couple of hundred people apply for it and then the chances of getting on were just zero. So I think this is something that if it's going to be done, I'd almost like to see this done by a non, I guess, a neutral party because the other thing I'm concerned about is if this was to go ahead, how many of this is going to be if I'm running this and I'm a shooter, oh, I'll get my mate in here, I'll get my mate in here. And then other people don't get opportunities as well. And I don't think boys bit of a boys club. Yeah, I don't think that's a positive. And we know that happens out there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stories that I've heard about this. Yeah. Well, so I have confirmed reports that the LLS shooting is exactly the same. If you ever want to get on an LLS culling team, you need to be one of those boys' mates. It's just a little in-house boys club, which I can understand if I was one of their mates, I'd absolutely want to know their hotspots and get access with them. But uh, yeah, anyway, I can see how you, where you're heading with it. Yeah. So additionally, I guess the next part of this was talking about goal two. And goal two is to control or eradicate small populations before they spread. Now, A, it doesn't really talk about what is a small population. Not that I could see. And look, the document is very extensive. Mm. It's very large. So again, I've unpacked it as best I could and, and sort of made a, a bit of a a bit of a PowerPoint that I'll put to video. But essentially what they want to do here is eradicate small populations beyond the containment zone. So anything in that highlighted area or beyond, they want to basically wipe out. They want to also reduce the impacts of feral deer in urban areas. Now this one here really is interesting to me is how are they going to be doing that in urban areas? Are they going to be shooting? What's going to happen there? And we'll probably, I've probably got the idea of when we get to it coming up. Goal three is to protect significant sites from impacts. So threatened species, ecological communities, and cultural assets. And this is basically, they're going to look at reviewing site management plans to protect nationally and internationally significant areas from impacts of feral deer. Now, as we sort of talked about before on signal trees and the like, I wouldn't have thought they were impacted. I'm not sure where they're saying areas are impacted here. I'm sure there's evidence and they have something there to be able to, to talk about or highlight what they're suggesting here. And also under goal three is protect threatened species and ecological communities. Now, again, there's so many elements to this and I've, I've got grave concerns. What are your thoughts on those two, Dodge? How are they going to do it? Like you said, it's pretty vague. How do you protect a threatened, a threatened, how do you protect a threatened species and ecological community? Um, I think fencing is their best option in that situation. If it's, it's been proven down in the high country when they fence off a, little water system or a, um, what's it called, natural spring that pops out of the ground and the samba can't get in there, that area flourishes and then they stop turning into a wallow and the native frogs and things return and it just goes back to the way it was. So I, uh, I would prefer that over some of their other options, which I'm sure we're going to get to. Yeah, I don't have any other thoughts on it. Oh, sorry. And the other thing that they're looking at goal three is protect habitats recovering from bushfires, which makes sense. They've been wiped out by the bushfire, you know, deer browsing on saplings and things like that it's probably going to impact them all right so this is where i guess this is the nitty-gritty of the stuff that we want to get into research and innovation for new controls and procedures the first one baits your favorite oh i am just 
this makes me so nervous. And we won't discuss it just yet. We're going to get into them in more detail. But I agree with the next one, thermally assisted control. It makes sense. Yep. As long as it's not from a chopper, that is a waste of money. I, I agree. And this is where ground culling comes right into it. Well, the only reason that's a waste of money is because they're not New Zealand. Those guys in Kiwi land, man, can they shoot from a chopper? Very skilled at it. And it's a mixture of chopper pilot skills and shooting skills. But I've handled some of the guns they use over there when they're doing the the stuff from the choppers. And they have, I don't know if you've ever seen it back in your army days, but like self-stabilizing scopes that sort of float a little bit and always holds point of impact, even though the gun is jitting around. That's pretty impressive to see. I think it's, for me, the helicopter cullings, the costs of the helicopter, they're mm. not cheap to have in the air and it's such a short time frame. So I know you were talking before going, oh, geez, it's a lot of money for the fence. But once the fence is up, the fence is up. You know, okay, there might be some damage here and there, but you've got the, what did you say it was, 25 kilometres or? Yeah, 27. You've got 27 kilometres of fence. Once you do a, a round of shooting that's it for the night. You're done. The session's over. That The cost is is up there. So for me, I understand that in some of these areas, it's very thick bush. It's hard to get in there. I'm not arguing that point. But I do also see there's other benefits in other different things that they're sort of looking at as well. Do you know the numbers on what it costs for a chopper a day with someone shooting out of it? I don't. Do you? Do you want to guess? Roughly. Look... Knowing a couple of chopper pilots and what they charge the hourly rate at, and I'm guessing that's without the cost of the chopper, I'd be saying I don't think you get much change out of for a night. I don't think you get much change out of ten grand. That's the deposit, sixty to eighty grand a day. Oh, per chopper. Yeah, well, well, I suppose you've got multiple people in there. You've got I know they're expensive insurances. Yeah, it's a lot of money, isn't it? Because in New Zealand, it's like. 2400 bucks for a little chopper for an hour. So you're running a big chopper. You're looking at eight grand an hour times eight hours. I'd love to know the amount of deer they cull and work that out on a financial sort of number. So if you're saying 60 grand for the chopper. Yeah, some. I know they're super successful in some areas. I mean, when they did the Hunter Valley stuff, man, they were, you know, 10,000 animals over a two-day period type thing, mixture of deer and pigs and whatnot. So it's um, those numbers are obviously worthwhile, but then I've heard of other guys going out and, you know, oh, we shot four dogs, eight deer, and 16 pigs in one night, and it cost $80,000. So that's about market value for venison, isn't it? Maybe. Well, the other thing there is, you know how you were talking <laughs> about the cost to the public? You can make the same argument as like fencing and things like that, but more people are going to be doing it. So there's more employment opportunities coming about fencing than there is helicopter culling like you've only got one pilot like I've, you know unless you're running multiple helicopters yeah, agreed i think we're all jealous of the helicopter stuff because we're not on it like if i was getting paid eighty thousand dollars a night i know they're not getting paid that but if i was getting paid at night to shoot out of a helicopter i'd probably go and give it a whirl oh look don't get me wrong it would be fun hey matt do you want to go out tomorrow night and shoot your first deer from a helicopter i'm uh <laughs> i'm not against people doing it i'm just sort of unpacking everything here and going well what yeah, what are the pros and cons here? What are we looking at? Now, let's focus mm. on these baits. This really concerns me. So they've got a table in the document and action 1.1 states the following. 
One or more lethal baits are registered nationally and for the control of feral deer for use under strict conditions to protect humans, domestic animals, wildlife, and the welfare of target species and where other control methods are not effective. I have some concerns about that. Let's go through those concerns. For me, human consumption of poisoned meat. Now, if they're baiting, what does it look like? How does it show up in the deer? Are you going to be able to tell? Is there any impact if you were to consume the meat that a deer has eaten the poison? I, I, I'm really worried about that, Dodge. What, what about yourself? You eat a lot of venison. Uh, are they not naming the poisons? Nope. Right. Do you know much about the 1080 stuff? For deer? Or just in general, the actual 1080 itself. Do you know what it's made out of? Uh, it's a natural substance. It doesn't isn't impact it? native animals. Yeah, I've, it's a isn't yeah. it come, it's a native tree that in high doses. Yeah, sodium uh, fluoroacetate, I believe it is, and doesn't affect native animals because they have a natural immunity to it. So they would have to eat a whole helicopter load of pellets of 1080 to die versus an introduced species eating one pellet and dying. I mean, it's scary that they don't name that. Like they will obviously use that, but if they're using several, what are the others? And have they been tested on Australian natives or, you know, what are they? As far as the meat consumption, circling back to that question, I I actually think there's going to be, if they use 1080s, there'd be a low, extremely low chance of someone consuming that because it's has a high rate of like a quick death rate. So it's not something that a deer would consume in small components, build up over time, and then three weeks later die from. They're, uh, they're consuming it frothing at the mouth pretty quickly and then convulsing. And the chances of that happening prior, like in between consuming it and then being shot is, I would think, quite low. And I don't feel that anyone's harvesting deer that they've just found on the ground, especially with a frothy mouth. So I don't know. Again, I'm just using 1080 as an example, and I can't comment on whether they're using that or not. And if they're using other things, well, then I can't comment on that either. But my assumption would be that's one of their major poisons that they're planning on using or baits. Well, it makes sense because they currently use it. Correct. And I know of some places just down near Goulburn where it's used extensively on the wild deer population. They literally pile up bales of hay and lace it with 1080. And then the next day they go and pick all the deer up from a 500 meter radius around it, put them in a hole, bury them and do it again two weeks later. I mean, it's effective. It works. The deer come in. The kangaroos come in at it too and they seem to make it away. So I have read some stuff sort of not particularly available to the public information about 1080 and it's a little bit less scary to me now that I know that. I mean, I don't want my dogs eating it. That's something that they wipe out instantly. I know it's a major issue in New Zealand. Farming dogs, when they were 1080 baiting out of choppers, dropping it down the streams and things like that and the trout and that were eating it. I can't comment on the impacts on the trout, but I know that the farm dogs were dying from it. That's a fact. And there was no remuneration or anything, no sorries. It was just unfortunate. So that's a definite uh, scary thing. And I know you said, Matt, you spoke to someone about the dog situation and the baiting and what they would do about it. Yeah, I spoke to someone that uses a um, indicating dog and they would not be taking their dog anywhere near forests that had been dropped with um, 1080 or even private property. Sorry, not 1080, just in gen- poison in general. When you talk about hunting dogs, a lot of time and effort go into them, training them and things like that. And the baits haven't been, well, as far as I read, the baits weren't named and 
as you just said, I read you what was out of straight out of the plan for action 1.1. And it was saying that multiple baits registered. So I don't think that they've even confirmed which ones that they would use. And that's my concern here. Not that, as you just said, 1080, you might be exactly right. And we can use that. No issues. It only impacts deer. But we don't know what the baits are. We don't know if there's been studies on the native animals for that particular bait because we don't really know what the baits are and they're wanting to do multiple. So I have concerns about that, especially when our native animals eat the same food. So, And then with the hunting dogs, yeah, I, I, I know if I'd spent hours and hours and hours and a lot of financial investment in a dog, I would be concerned going into an area to, that was had baits around. Well, you just wouldn't go in there, would you? No. And then that's... I guess, a method that you've just removed. Well, you're not with your dog, yeah. You got any other concerns in regards to baits? I don't want them used. Like, I don't think it's a humane way to go. Um, it's definitely effective. I can't argue that. There's buy kill. They can't argue that. Yeah. I don't know. I Emotionally, I don't want it to happen to my pets, but if I was in a situation where I need to cull a lot of introduced species in a quick period, like foxes and things like that, they use baited chicken heads and things like that. It's... Uh, it's effective. It works. It's not particularly humane, but I would argue it's probably quicker death than sometimes what these animals go through at uh, abattoirs and things like that. The stress level for the animal is low initially. They're just eating food and then they get sick pretty quickly and convulse and die. Now, we spend all this time saying that animals are animals and we have stewardship over them and have to control them and that you know how much emotion do they feel versus what we feel. Like we would if you saw someone eat a bait or a poison and they were convulsing and dying, you'd say that guy's in a lot of pain. Um, it's hard to measure that in a wild animal. So um, I can see the purpose in it. I don't particularly agree with it as far as I would rather shoot them than see them baited and die that way. But I've also seen deer shot and run away and die later. So that doesn't happen with 1080. There's no dying later. All right. So the next one, controversial topic here, suppresses. Now, Again, in their document, Action 1.6, promote the regulated use of firearm suppressors, sound moderators for feral deer control programs. Now, there is a clause in there that says accessibility differs under state laws. Mm, as it already does. There's more to this. They've identified it as a best practice tool and they'd like it available to maximize efficiencies of control programs and animal welfare. It's nice of them to recognise that finally. Yes. Where are these people in government? And all state agencies wishing to improve access to regulated use of firearm suppressors, sound moderators for coordinated feral deer control programs are taking steps to seek access as advised by state contacts. Now, I have a couple of things here. We've just had a silencer bill put through by the SFFP. Where was this part? Mm. A- I've spoken about how I can't believe we called it a silencer. But in this document, we call it a suppressor, which is nice to see. And it's clear. They're making it very clear that it's a best practice tool to maximize your efficiency. It's better for the animals. This It makes sense. And I started this episode saying there's some positives coming out of this action plan. This is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, we know it. It's just nice to see them admit it. And you mentioned right at the start too that there's a lot of acronyms behind these groups, but imagine if these were some of the main groups in government and we could then leverage this. If this is one of their suggestions, why can't we leverage this against them as a suggestion for other things? 
So I guess on that, it's a good segue as to what some of these are. So when you're going through these this table and it talks about each each goal's broken down, there's an action, an outcome, and performance measures to make sure that they're on track. The people in charge of these are identified in different um, – there's a couple of different ones. So we have the NFDAPIC, and that stands for the National Feral Deer Action Plan Implementation Committee. What a mouthful. It is. I'd put that as an acronym. There is also an NDMC, which is National Deer Management Coordinator, SG, which is stakeholder groups including agencies, and RDC, which is Regional Feral Deer Coordinators. Um, Basically, the job of the NDMC is to collate the performance measures. Right, so make sure everybody's working together. They're sort of the person overseeing this, and I'm guessing that's who we'd be giving feedback to if you have any feedback for them or any suggestions, etc. So suppressors, I, I like. I'm not going to lie. I think that's quite good. All right, so our next one's accreditation, all right, and this comes under Action 1.8. Identifying options for accreditation of volunteer shooters or professional shooters in coordinated programs. I like this. Well, this is something we identified two years ago now. So when we set up Accurate Hunts from the beginning, it was the fact that education and accreditation courses are going to be the future for regulated hunting, whether it's nationally or in New South Wales, I'm not sure, but and I don't know when. I just realized that that's the way forward. It's, you know, we, we look at kids getting their L's these days. It used to be 20 hours, then it's 50 hours, and then you've got to do time with a, with a uh, driving instructor. And you've got to do night driving. They're just moving the goalposts and it's going to be the same with us. So, And that was part of the reason we set the course up was to sort of get ahead of the curve and get set up and get organized so that when these things pop up, we can jump in and say, righto, we're already offering this accreditation course for volunteers. Well, not for volunteers, but for, for hunters. So let's, uh, let's step into that field. So personally, I have a vested interest in that one and I, uh, I'm keen to see where that one goes. I actually don't think it's a bad idea either. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. No, look, I like it. I think the accreditation part is something that if done correctly and upskilling, I think it then will open access and I think that's a positive. You know, we say, oh, geez, it'd be good to be able to go into national parks. Why can't we? Well, they're probably worried about the public, et cetera, et cetera. If there is a higher level of accreditation, even if you, it is for rec, rec, recreational hunters, then all of a sudden we are able to go, hey, we've trained, we've got trained personnel in the area as opposed to just the casual bloke. And I think that's important when we start to talk about accreditation and training. I mean, the, that's just the reality of it. Yes, there'll be a cost to it. But you, don't, you probably won't have to do it. I, I don't see that changing. I don't think it's ever going to probably go that everybody has to go through all these hoops. But I can see it that if you want to go and potentially shoot on a, a property or what I'd like to see here is I'd like to see an accreditation that if you go onto a farm as a recreational shooter, that it covers the farmers a lot more because you've done training. And if something goes wrong, that it does fall back on the, the shooter themselves insurance. Talking about the cost there, it, uh, it does get to the point though where these things, if they're mandated by the government, they're quite often subsidized by the government. So if they're going to make it mandatory, well, it's the same as the COVID thing, right? They made the vaccine mandatory unless you didn't want to get it, but then the government paid for it. So the cost thing would be interesting. Yeah, but okay, look at DPI. 
the government's not offsetting your R license tests and examiners and things like that too. You've got to pay for that. Yeah, okay. Anyway. So it just depends how they go. If everybody has to do it, you're right. But if, if, it's, if it's going to be like a volunteer, and that's what I'm reading this saying, accreditation of volunteer shooters. So that's saying that not everybody is going to have to do this. It's just if you want to do it, this is what's going to sort of happen. The next part of that was talking about recognized standards which enable pools of accredited volunteer or professional shooters applying best practice control. Again, I'm not against this. I think this is a really good idea. I think if you want to be sort of involved in this, go through the accreditation steps. What I, again, I would just like to make sure that you don't do all these things, pay for all these things, and then all of a sudden it's just getting flicked out to mates that it's actually implemented properly. And the next one, which is interesting, is at least one best practice course is developed and or promoted to coordinate feral deer control programs to enable participating shooters to be accredited, and that's via training providers. I, I think these are all positive things when we're talking about having a best practice course. You know, you want courses delivered that everybody has access to if they want it, that it's delivered the same way, so it's, it's measurable, it's tracked, it's consistent. I like it. I don't. I have no issue with any of this. It does create jobs too. Correct. You know, guys like us doing it or um, RTOs, registered training organizations. I do fear that sometimes these courses are taught by people who don't understand them as far as, you know, there might be people that are professional course givers. A lot of RTOs have, well, that's all they do, right? Give courses, but they may not be a fencer giving the fencing course or they may not be a hunter or a shooter. So they might understand the theory side of it, but not the practical side. I'd argue against that, that also just because someone has done the job that they don't know how to actually teach the content and they don't know how to create programs and learning objectives and things like that as well. So I think it needs to be done so that both elements are done, that you're making sure that you've got the skills and that can be taught to someone that has the pedagogy to be able to actually put it into a training program and deliver it from a teaching perspective or an educational perspective. Did you just say Tamagotchi? Pedagogy. What is that? It's the name of education. Right. Spell it, please. P-E-D-A-G-O-G-Y. Can you put it in a sentence, please? Uh, your pedagogical practice or the the way you teach is um, you use skills of pedagogy. Yeah, right. Never heard it. You're welcome to everyone that's listening that's also never heard it. And now we have it. Yes, there you go. Yeah, I still think it sounds like Tamagotchi. So, look, the accreditation thing... I think it's a really good thing. I don't think education in any form is a bad thing, essentially, no matter which way it comes. I don't know whether it should be mandatory, but uh, I do Yeah, I do think I'll be taking any education courses I can, irrelevant of whether I think I already know the information or not because I don't think you can ever stop learning off people. Okay, so what now? I guess that's the big one, Dodge, is we've unpacked a couple of the key elements and given our sort of thoughts and ideas on it, so for our listeners, I guess there's a couple of key dates here that you need to know. The consultation of this document closes on Monday, the 20th of March, 2023 at 5 p.m. Australian Eastern Time. If you do want to provide comment, the email address can be found on the video on our YouTube or as I said, contact us, send us an email or jump on our Facebook or Instagram and we will have it up there for you to access, copy and paste it across. 
Now, if you are interested, there's a public webinar being held on Monday, the 23rd of January, 2023. So that's not that long away. We're only probably talking a week or so. That's going to be at 2 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. Yeah, great time for guys at work. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put the links up for everybody. So, again, jump on our um, Facebook and basically our Facebook because it's easier to post links there. Instagram doesn't like it. So, on our Facebook, jump on there and we will have the link to the actual draft plan itself. So, if you want to get on and you want to read through the draft or they do have a summary. So, if you haven't liked what we've done here and tried to break it down for you, if you want to go through it yourself, by all means, I encourage everybody to do that as well. You might pick up something that I've missed and, yeah, have a look at it. But I do encourage everybody to give some feedback. This is our chance as shooters, hunters, to have a voice and to put our, our foot forward. And, hey, it might not work, but you know what? It's it's better trying than just leaving this and letting it go to the wind and I haven't really seen much about this, so I think it's really important that we get this out and about. So I do ask everyone, share this like crazy. Get it out to anyone that you know is a hunter. Dodge? I've used New Zealand as an example a few times tonight, and I'm going to use it again. We were over there for the Seeker show at Taupo, and while that was happening, there was something happening in the background with the government about culling the tar, and it was Eugenie, whatever her name was, and... They were going, yeah, they were putting forward that they were going to shoot the tar, basically, wipe out all invasive uh, in introduced species, starting with the tar. Now, what happened while we were at that show was a foundation got made called the Tar Foundation and an online membership slash GoFundMe page started all while this weekend was happening. By the end of the weekend, there was something like $200,000 in that account. It was just hunters donating. For a good cause, and the big companies, the uh, rod and gun or fish and fish and game over there, their shops were dropping. Each shop was dropping twenty grand or something. Like it was massive numbers, and all the community were behind it, and they were lobbying, and they ended up, I wouldn't say winning, but definitely changing the way that all played out with some positive interactions. And it was a, a little bit like this, where there was some, you know, cloak and smoke screen sort of stuff where the government was sort of hiding some details or you know, letting it play out secretly and quietly behind closed doors. But the Tar Foundation really pushed for open and transparent communication. And like you said at the start, why haven't we heard of this? Why are the Shooters Union not pushing this? Why are ADA not into this? Are they and we're just not seeing it? Because I spent a lot of time on Facebook and Instagram and I've never once seen this come up. So... Like, how hard is it to drop five grand on a sponsored post that goes across the country to every single person that likes deer hunting? It's just, uh, have they not seen it or are they not interested or are we just missing the fact they are sharing it and talking about it and we're not seeing it? So I can't say whether they are or they aren't because I haven't seen it, but I would assume I would have seen it if it has been shared. So I uh, appreciate you bringing it up tonight, Matt, and I do think it's it's an important topic and I'll be tuning i'm lucky enough to still be on holidays on the 23rd so i will be tuning in to watch that live stream i don't know if there'll be questions available but uh, definitely be interesting what about you matt you probably back, are you back at work then or not no i'm still going to be off so i'll probably jump on as well can we have a super bowl party and watch it at your house yeah 100 percent. beer and chips and feral, feral deer party Woo maybe that's our next meeting we'll go down the <laughs> go down the pub see if we can throw that on up the on the big screen i think could be a yeah 2 a.m lunch I've, look, 
In fairness, I have seen one person posted on Facebook. Who was to it? One group. Oh, Steve something. Just a private person, sorry. Not no, me. I do think they have some sort of role in shooting. I don't know what they do. I don't know the person. But I have seen him pop up a few times, especially when it comes to legislation, politics, and things like that. Um, however, I, like yourself, am generally on Facebook and a lot of the hunting groups, and I haven't seen anything come up uh, other than that one post. So I do think that's a, a little bit of a, uh, a concern as far as from my perspective anyway. I guess, Dodge, to wrap it up, we have created a bit of a, an email template, and I think I'll raise the email points here. And I, I want your thoughts on this too. So for me, I've broken it down into sort of the key areas that I think we need to discuss if people are giving feedback. And as I said before, I'm happy to send a template to anyone that would potentially want to use it. Just send us an email. For me, baiting, I, I think it's a real big concern. And for people who regularly consume wild venison, uh, as you said, you made some valid points. It might not impact it. But where's the research? For me, I want to see some research out there that has the proof so that I'm at ease. The other thing that I think we've not really touched on is what's the financial impact for those people who rely on that meat, the people that go out there and venison is the thing. So say, and and we're talking worst case scenario here, if there is an issue with people consuming tainted meats, what about the people that they rely on that as their protein source, that they don't go to the butcher? You know, people like our mate Hunt Catch Cook who doesn't, hasn't been to a butcher in 11 years. <laughs> you know, that, that could severely impact him using this sort of stuff. Mm. Has that been looked at? Because there was nothing that I could see in this document that talked about that. Yeah. Uh, devil's advocate, he's not going to die because the deer die. Like there's no one out there wholly and solely living off venison that probably couldn't eat something else. I understand what your point is, but it's a, uh, it's definitely a, uh, I don't know what the term is. Not a sideline, but to- It's something to be considered. Yeah, definitely something to be taken on board. I don't think they realize that people consume as much venison as we do. Look, the other one for me is that, you know, inflation, if, if we're just looking at our current financial sort of status, you know, doing my finances the other day with the wife and we're looking at this, just the interest rates for the home loans at the moment. And, you know, we're talking significant amounts of money here. And that is going to really impact people. So- Going out and buying meat from the store, if people haven't done that previously, and with the cost of living being high as it is, especially in our cities, geez, it just makes it harder. I don't think it's needed. And I think that's something to be thought of because this document hasn't thought of those things. It's a good document, don't get me wrong, but I think it is very pitched from one way. There are some positives for the hunter, but there are also things that I don't think have been looked at. Do you think the positives are probably put in there to dangle carrots? Potentially. And I think that there's clauses in there you can see with the wording as with the suppressor. And I think there's wording in there that is like a get out of jail free card. But, hey, this could get us over the line here. And we're going to use baits in these areas. We haven't really told you what baits they are. We're going to get a couple of approves. Yeah, it's very interesting about how that is going to go. The next email point leads on to what you said. Is it a carrot? Increase the use of recreational hunters. They mention recreational hunters, but I think there could be so much more used here. I've talked about it before that there needs to be a governing body to set up that potentially farmers, like you said before, a farmer can say, hey, I've got this, get some people. Why don't we have uh, you know, an Uber 
for hunting. There's plenty of farmers out there. A lot of farmers are worried about letting people on because they've had bad experiences. So why don't we have a governing body that rates, you know, lets the farmers rate hunters. You can see who you're getting. You could see reviews on them. You could even charge people to be a part of that. A, a small fee, I'd be happy to pay to potentially get access. You're getting venison. So it's a win-win for the farmer because they're almost trusting who's coming in because they've been rated. Mm-hmm. They come with, you know, referees and it's not coming from someone that they know or, hey, mate, uh, can I have access to your property? Call this person. They're, uh, they're a referee for me. You know, you don't know who they are, but if you're getting a governing body saying, yep, this person has the accreditation, they've accessed this, they've shot here, we've had really good feedback, their rating's five star. For me, if I was a farmer letting someone on, I'm sitting there going, hey, I'm a lot more confident and I'm probably going to let more people on knowing that because it's a bit of peace of mind. And I think that's something that we could put in the email um, to really promote recreational hunters. What are your thoughts about that? No, I agree with that. I, uh, the rating system's interesting and I definitely take bottles of water and mints on all my hunting trips so I get five stars. I Yeah, but you eat them yourself and rate yourself. Well, I, just for me, on, on my hunting trips, I said. I didn't say guiding <laughs> trips. It's just in my, in my <laughs> bino harness. While you were talking then, I actually just did a search to see who had shared the feral deer action plan on Facebook. And to be fair, let's say some people have. It's been shared to the like State Forest page, got zero comments. ABC Illawarra shared it, two comments. Centra, Center for Invasive Species Solutions shared it, one comment. Like it's just not getting interaction. The Steve do you saw, and uh, that got shared by the Winter Carry Hunters and Anglers Club on their page. Zero interactions, no comments, no likes, nothing. It's just not getting the hits that- Traction. The traction. So here we are though, the Threatened Species Commissioner. Here's one, uh, 80 comments and 19 shares. He's on the other side of it. He's trying to get rid of the deer. But that's that's not many. Uh, no, it's still not, but he's on the other side. He starts with, did you know that deer- Actually, no, it's a she. Sorry, I didn't look at the photo. She says, did you know that deer aren't native to Australia, but there are- more than six species of feral deer here now and then ranging on their size. And it's just a very different worded section than uh, the way we've spoken about it tonight. But uh, so anyway, I will rebuke my comment of not many people have shared it. There is actually quite a few shares. However, the interactions from the punters, very low. And I'm guilty of that. I've probably, I've seen that post and just scrolled past it. So... I still think it's very low in shares. Agreed. None of the governing bodies are doing anything about it. If you're talking about hunters and in hunting groups, I have not. I think that's very low. And whether that's people just haven't seen it, it hasn't been out there, it hasn't been promoted well. And I guess this is one of the reasons we want to do this podcast is to say, guys, this is a chance for us to really have some impact and voice. We have a lot of damn shooters in this country, a lot of hunters. Even the R license system, just here in New South Wales, there are a lot of people that are in there. We should be all sending an email, make our voices heard. So the ADA wrote quite a substantial post on it on the 15th of December, 2022. Quite a good post about it and a bit good. like you've done tonight. They've you know given a bit of a breakdown. One stat here, in Victoria alone, 200,000 wild deer are harvested annually that they know of as sustainable wild food by recreational hunters, by far and away the single largest and most economically effective management tool. But then, so that post, that's the ADA with, let's see how many members the ADA has on Facebook. Bear with us. 
um, 20,000 members and that post got, here we go, sorry guys, nine comments and five shares. Yeah. Why is it not getting the traction? Do people not care? I don't think people know the impact of it and that's where I guess it's really hard in fairness in short form on social media to get things across. I feel sorry for all these large organizations because when this episode comes out, I'm tagging you all. (laughs) I'm going to tag them all in it. Well, we've spent an hour, you know, over an hour unpacking this and talking about this. You can't do that with a Facebook post. You can't do that with an Instagram or a tweet. It just, you haven't got the depth. So all our listeners out there, if you're hearing this, get on board, share it. Share the podcast, share the video, share the link to the thing. I don't care what you share, but we need to do this because if we don't and this gets through and it isn't positive for hunting, we then don't have anybody else to blame but ourselves. I think that's the the takeaway message here. Yeah. Some other points, Dodge, I thought from the email, we've spoken about it at length previously, talking about a tag system and doing something like the North American conservation model. We've got thousands of hunters that I reckon would pay for a tag system, a raffle to jump into national parks just here in New South Wales alone. Queensland doesn't even have any public hunting, public land hunting. I know that if they were given the opportunity to to grab some tags to get into some public land, it would go through the roof. So when we're talking about the fencing costs, when we're talking about these other elements, there is offset options here. Hell, you could even just pick conservation areas or heritage areas that you want to protect do something like the dpi does and go here's the map here's the area that you guys have got to hunt in here's the tag system that's income that's opportunity that we didn't have that's a win-win for everybody yeah i agree with that i don't think it would ever work in australia to the level it works in the states on public land and and agreed i'm saying state forest and things like that and kyle raised some points on that when we spoke about this briefly in one of the earlier things about, you know, it just becomes a bit of an elitist group where the people, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing that word in his words, but, you know, the people have to pay to get access to these things. Well, they've still got state forest for free, so it's a little bit different than that, but I'm all for that. If, Like you said, if there was a fee to get involved in that, I'm keen because it gets you in, it's a bit of a win-win, right? It gets you into areas that others can't access or we previously couldn't access. And it also helps. It helps hunting. It helps hunters. It helps this sport last. So You could argue that elitist thing a little bit more, but I think like reflecting on those comments, I didn't bring them up at the time, but you've got guides out there. So, you know, you're not paying – when we're talking about a tag system here, even a ballot, you know, I always go in the hog deer ballot one, and what, I think that's 25 bucks. Yep. Now, I'm sorry, that's not elitist. If you're paying $25. No, and we, I think, and again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't think they were his words, and that's probably not what he meant, but I guess what he was saying was that it's sort of, why should we have to pay for something that's on national land? The sort of, we own the land anyway, so. But I agree. The the money's, I don't think, the issue. The guiding thing would be a good thing, personally, but also from an economic point of view, I think it's good to employ local people. And it also works from a safety point of view. If you've got two people together or someone who knows the area well, it's obviously more effective. But if you've got a guide that knows the area and where the animals are, why don't you just pay the guide to go in and shoot them all if you want to get rid of them all? The other thing is if we're going into national parks to eradicate, well, we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, this isn't eradication though. This plan is to minimize minimize the spread. Mm. 
And that's what I like about this plan. It is clear that they want to eradicate from certain areas to stop the spread, but they're not saying we're going to wipe out deer. I think the realities hit home that, hey, with one to two million here, I don't think it doesn't matter what you're going to do. It's not really going to, you know, they could bait everywhere and I don't think it'll work. There'll still be deer. They, They won't be able to bait quick enough with the deer reproducing. So I think that's something to be mindful of as well when we're talking about this. The other one I think we should talk about is night hunting with devices. It's illegal to hunt at night on public land with spotlight, night vision or thermal. So this is a perfect time to hunt here. Again, there could be some training courses and licenses made available for hunters that can let them hunt at night. And there was accreditation, things like that. I again see this as an opportunity for rec hunters to go, hey, I'm happy to do some accreditation. I'm happy to do some training and I'm happy to get out there and shoot areas of a night. Now that could be, hey, national parks. National parks don't get used of a night by the public. So maybe that's the time that people go in there. I, I don't know. It's a tricky one. I don't think that would ever happen in state forest. But imagine if every second night was thermal night. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you run the dogs. And then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you run thermal and then everyone gets a night off on Sunday. It would uh, be amazing to see what you could pull out of a state forest with thermals at nighttime. I just, uh, again, like you said, that's when the deer are active. That's when they're easy to find. And that's when that thermal stuff really comes into its own. And I've said it before, education. Keen for it. I don't care. I'll go and learn about thermal stuff. We had old Hunt the Night on here and he does education nights and open nights. That's what his goal is. So again, he's uh, put himself in a position to be very well ready for that to happen if it ever does. Suppressors, you know, I think this is the time. It's been going through the parliament here in New South Wales. Let's talk about implementing a license system for them. You know, I know a lot of people out there are not keen on the whole licensing system for firearms, but the reality is it's there. It's not going away. Let's start to look at using some things towards our advantage and the licensing system doesn't really impact me, to be honest. I have no issues with it. If they said, hey, you want a suppressor, it's a different license to apply for, Um, okay, I haven't got a problem. Do I have to store it differently? Okay, I haven't got a problem. Whatever the legislation is, if that helps me get that suppressor, I'm happy to I'm happy to look at it and go, hey, I either make the decision, yes, I'm I'm happy to go with it, or no, I'm not. But I think that's a win. I, I think that this is a another chance to say, hey, this is best practice implement. We should be using this. Yeah, I'm good with that. I agree with all of that. And I think the probably the last point is the economic impact. There is so much in here about the negatives but they didn't look at the positives. And the positives in this is that, I can't remember the figures, but we cost, sorry, we spend a lot of money hunting. And by spending a lot of money hunting, that is going to regional and rural communities. It's going to businesses and companies. There is a lot of money involved and this has not been looked at in the economic impact. It's only been looked at as a negative. There are also, as we said before, opportunities for farmers, training, even access to farmlands and private property. There's so many opportunities here to, yes, it might cost, hey, state forests, leave them uh, for people that don't want to pay, but there are people out there that would pay. And that's just uh, another positive in the economic side to try and, you know, get some extra benefits for us as hunters. 
Yeah, great idea. It's interesting that, and I said it early on there, that all the impacts they were talking about were negative impacts on all three areas that you highlighted. There wasn't any positives that came out of it. And look, I mean, look, that's their job. Let's let's be honest. This plan is being done to to look that way, and that's that's the reality. I mean, it is what it is. And I guess all we can do here is, like we've done tonight, Dodge, is to say, guys, here's all the information as we see it. We could be wrong. I, I might have misinterpreted a couple of things, and don't take it as gospel. I really do encourage you to to read the draft plan, and and get on there and give your feedback. So. Once again, jump on our Facebook. The links will be there for the actual draft plan itself. We'll put up the photo of the email to be able to send them an email with your comment. There is a contact form on the plan as well. Uh, I prefer email personally. So if they open the inbox and there's a couple of thousand there saying, hey, this is what we're doing, it's going to probably take, they're going to take a bit more notice of it than maybe a contact form where it won't trickle in. You can't ring them and abuse them. Well, I think they have to. Like all these have to be logged and responded to in this sort of situation. So, well, let's hope so. I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. It should be, but you never know. So, again, just lastly, a couple of those key dates. Uh, consultation closes Monday, the twentieth of March, twenty twenty three, at five pm. Uh, that's important. So, don't leave it last minute. Get it in early. Get your feedback. Again, we'll, we're happy to send you an email template. There's that webinar on Monday, the twenty third of January this year at two pm. I'll be on there. Yeah, so will I. I think this is just in too important to miss. It'd be interesting how long it goes for and if we have the opportunity to record it, screen record it and maybe share it. Yeah, I'm not sure. We might not allow that. We'll look into it. We can have a, yeah, have a watching party at my house or your house if anyone else is interested. Yeah, reach out. So. Yeah, get in touch. All right, guys, I hope this has been helpful. We've tried to unpack it the best we can. There's a lot there and, and we've only really scratched the surface to an extent, but um, we've at least... I guess I can go to sleep at night knowing that I did everything I sort of possibly could to get this out and about, help people out and say, hey, let's uh, let's speak up for hunters. And like I said, I apologize to all the major organizations that I'm about to tag when this episode comes out. As, um, yeah, I just think it's important that everyone gets it out there as much as they can. And like I said, I retract my statement of not many people have, but what I will double down on is the fact that there was just no interest or no no engagement and that's you know disappointing somewhat but also just a fact of how the internet works everyone sees everything but no one does anything so thanks for listening in tonight thanks matt for your breakdown i appreciate that and look forward to hearing everyone's feedback on it all right guys bye for now catch ya if you have a question for the team shoot us an email our email address is the endless pursuit podcast at gmail.com alternatively jump on our social media Facebook and Twitter, you can find us by using the at Hunting Journeys and Instagram, find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.